um, provides questions to what it may be that, it, that is out there. But I, I think that what is happening in our culture um, most recently is that there's a sense in which that thirst for transcendence is being drained from us. And more and more, we're coming to the conclusion that maybe there is nothing out there. Maybe it's just us. And what has happened is that in so many different ways, we've lost the sense of wonder, the sense of transcendence. We've lost, possibly, a vision of true human flourishing. Or maybe more accurately, we've, we start to think that maybe that's not actually really possible. It's not something that can be attained. And then we come here to John chapter 1. We're reminded that transcendence is real. That wonder is actually a thing. And that true flourishing is actually possible. As we come to this text this morning, uh, what jumps out at us is that we flourish when we live in God's life. And so I want to look at two different things um, in this passage, God's life and our life in God's life, all right? We flourish when we live in God's life. We're going to talk about God's life and our life in God's life. John begins, in the beginning was the word. You notice what John is doing actually um, harkens us back to the last book that we just finished up. Now, Genesis had 50 chapters, so it was a long time ago, three years ago, that we looked at Genesis 1-1, but that is clearly what John is doing in the opening of his gospel. He's taking us back to the beginning, to the beginning of the story, to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. This is intentional by John. It's not accidental. John is wanting to do something for his readers. He's wanting us to understand the coming of Jesus into the world as a new creation. So let's think about it this way. God made people, places, and things to flourish. But we know from Genesis and from our actual real lives that all is not well. Something has gone wrong with the world. We are separated from God. We question, like we talked about, whether transcendence and wonder are real things, whether there's really glory in the world and in in our lives. And God orchestrated a plan, a plan to make it all right. And so what John is doing here is he's he's basically putting off flashers for us. The time has finally come. God is going to begin to fulfill his plan for us. New creation is about to take place. This isn't the only reference to Genesis um, in this book. There are many references throughout the Gospel of John to creation in particular and to the book of Genesis as a whole. Even in this first chapter, we have this correlation with the days of creation through Um, what Jesus does each of the first days in this Gospel of John. So it's very clear that John is wanting to drive us back to Genesis, that what is happening here, the context for it, goes all the way back to the beginning. We also get the light and darkness themes. Did you pick up on that as we read these verses? We have life, we have light, we have darkness, all um, words or imagery that we find in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, 
was the Word. What does that mean? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This word, maybe you've heard this before, this word translated as word here in John chapter 1 is actually the word logos. Have you ever heard that word before maybe, logos? It, you know, at first glance, it seems like, or as you first hear it, it seems like that's a simple word. Uh, it must be translated as word, but there's much more going on there than we can really understand um, in our present day in, in this context. This word carried a lot of, we could say, philosophical baggage. And so it's also intentional on John's part that he utilizes this word to speak to his first readers to describe who Jesus is and what he's, came, what he's come to do. You see, the ancient Greeks were concerned, just like us, I means basic to human life, with answering the ultimate questions of reality. You could think of it this way, you know... Um, the young child who is constantly asking why, 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 mommy, why, daddy? And let's be honest, this isn't unique to children. Uh, we do this throughout our lives. Maybe we just reach a point where we vocalize it less. But this is basic to, to what it means to be human. We're always asking why. We're wanting to know why a thing is, what's behind it. We want to know the answers to the big questions of life. And the ancient Greeks were caught up in this as well. They wanted to find the ultimate reality that lied behind everything. And over time, as these ancients pondered these questions, they came up with a term to, to describe this ultimate reality that they were after. And guess what that term was? Logos. The logos came to be understood as that which gives meaning and life to life, to our existence. And so within the realm of Greek philosophy, however, in particular, the Logos was largely understood to be an impersonal force, not a personal being. All right, so you're tracking with me so far. Just like us, the ancient Greeks were asking the big questions of life. They wanted to know why, 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 and they wanted to get at the reality that is behind everything. And they weren't sure what it is, but they said, whatever it is, it's Logos. Logos is what defines all of reality for us. John speaks into this very basic human condition of asking the big questions of life. And he uses this word. And we find this a lot with the gospel writers in particular, but even throughout the New Testament. They're brilliant in taking words of the culture that the people, their original audience would have been familiar with and explaining them in a different way to unpack the fullness of the Christian story, who Jesus is and what he had come to do. And so the Apostle John does at least two things, as we see here in John chapter 1, at least two things that would have been unthinkable to the ancient Greeks with this term. Rather than an impersonal force, the logos of John's gospel that he's referring to is a personal being who apparently can be received or rejected by other people. And then he takes it a step further. This is mind-blowing. This logos, you ready for this, also became incarnate, meaning that he, he took on human flesh and manifested, John tells us, the glory of God. And it's in verse 14 that John finally identifies this logos as Jesus. Now, 
it's hard for us to really feel um, the bigness of this and how it would have impacted the original audience. But what John is doing here is remarkable. He's redefining Logos. He's saying that what is behind all things, the reality behind all things is not impersonal, it's actually personal. And he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, taking on human form. Now look at verse 4. In him was life. Let's make the connection here. There's, it's, we can't wrap our minds around this again, but Jesus always was. He, he wasn't created. He's eternal, we could say. And John, going back to verse 1, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning. When's the beginning start? Well, at least for our comprehension, it begins with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But God existed before that beginning, the beginning that we know. God always was. This is where wonder and transcendence come in. This is why it's so important for us to gather on Sundays, to rehearse the story, to be reminded of what is actually true, so that, to put it bluntly, our minds might be blown and we might be led to deeper worship of God in our lives. Jesus always was, and he's personal. Now, we don't have here an explicit teaching necessarily of the Trinity, So in the Christian faith, we speak of God in Trinitarian terms or as a triune God. He's one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, every time that I talk about the Trinity, I say the exact same thing. I wish so much that I could put up a diagram on the screen for you and explain it fully so that you uh, comprehend it completely. That is not possible. Uh, Theologians have been trying to talk about the Trinity in helpful terms throughout history, But it's just hard to really get at. It's hard for us to comprehend. But it was C.S. Lewis, at least, that I think said something really helpful. He said that the point of the Trinity, in other words, the point of God, is not so much for us to figure him out and diagram him, but rather to enter into his life. That last phrase is really important because that's going to kind of be the driver behind the rest of this series. From all eternity existed God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in community, in relationship within himself, overflowing with joy, delight, fullness. And he makes a world. And in that world, he makes people. And we know from the creation story that human beings made in his image, it's the crowning work of his Creation. And throughout the story, he says, it is good, it is good. And then finally, when he finishes, particularly with the creation of humans, he says, it is very good. What we have in creation is God's goodness, his creativity, his joy, his delight, his fullness, his very own flourishing, overflowing into the world that he has made. Why? Well, let me put it this way. When you experience something that brings you deep joy and delight, what do you do? You want to share it with others, right? You want to talk to others about it. 
I, I may have already used this particular illustration, I don't remember, but the Eagles won the Super Bowl a few months ago now. That really did happen. That's still true for you Philadelphia. I don't, must not be many sports fans here this morning. I expected a better, maybe some cheering. The Eagles did win the Super Bowl, so you three Eagles fans, you want to respond to that now? All right. But anyhow, when I watched the Super, I'll put it this way. There was no way that I was going to watch that game by myself. I watched it with people who were close to me, who also cared about it, because it's not something, from my perspective as a Philadelphia sports fan, that you want to experience on. It's not possible. You're me- it's not containable. You're meant to share in it with others. And I think there's a sense of that going on in creation. You see, God can never be conceited. He can never think too highly of himself because he always was. He's the creator. He is our greatest good. And so God wanted others to be able to experience what he got to experience within himself. So he creates and he creates us. And there's this dance, if you will, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, we don't have this explicit doctrine necessarily unpacked for us in John, but the building blocks are definitely there. That the word, Jesus, was with God, and he was God, and he was from the beginning. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And within God is life. And that highlights verse 4. In him was life. In other words, life always existed. True life, true vitality, true fullness, true flourishing always existed because it is ultimately found within God himself. And John is saying that this is now what is coming into the world. I want you to see how the Christian story is really unique and really powerful, and how it, it speaks to us about transcendence and wonder and the claims that it is making. And remember, John the Apostle here, he, he's writing based on eyewitness account. He was an apostle who had actually seen Jesus. And this story that he had been caught up in and come to believe as true, it's working the same way for him. It, he can't contain it. He's over filled with joy, and so he writes to tell more people about it. God is personal. He wants to be in relationship with us. And so as we kick off this series talking about human flourishing, we want to come back to the basic idea that true life is found in God. Within God, flourishing happens. I want to draw from a word that we use frequently throughout the Genesis series because it's a word that also takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. And some of you probably already can guess what word I'm going to say, shalom. The best definition of shalom that I've ever come across is by a man named Cornelius Plantina. And he says, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. Then he goes on to say, Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be, the full flourishing of human life in all aspects as God intended it to be. And the point we're making is this, that shalom originates in the very person and character of God. See, shalom is not a concept that we simply just apply to our surroundings, the world in which we live. 
Shalom originates with God. God experiences shalom with himself. God is shalom. And so as he creates, it makes sense that the world in which he creates, its direction, its intention would be towards flourishing and fullness and vitality. That is, of course, until human beings mess it all up. To kind of transition us to the next point about our life in God's life, uh, Michael Miller is a research fellow at the Axton Institute and director of Poverty Cure, and he explained in an interview that human flourishing is a life well-lived according to our nature made in the image of God. It seeks the good, the true, and the beautiful. So what we're doing here is we are defining human flourishing, or just the word flourishing, in the context of who God is and relationship to him. That is where, as his followers, we get our concept, or maybe a better word would be our vision for human flourishing. It's God's vision for the world. They're one and the same. A true vision for human flourishing is God's very vision for the world that he had from the time that he made it. This life, John says, was now coming into the world, into a world that was now dying and decaying because of sin. A world now in which people are tempted to question whether transcendence and wonder are real things. John says they are. Life is coming. Light is coming. And the darkness cannot overcome it. And this true light enlightens everyone, John says. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So, Lagos, God, Jesus, comes into the world bringing life with him. He can't help but to do that because he is life. I think it's helpful for us to realize something. It might be surprising to you, or maybe it, might, it would be refreshing. Um, you, you know this, but it's just refreshing for you to be reminded of it and hear it in these terms. Jesus wasn't interested in helping people become more religious in, in the way that we tend to think about religion and duty and ritual. That wasn't Jesus' interest. He didn't come to try to help people become more religious per se. He was interested in helping people flourish. He was interested in drawing people into the very life of the Trinity. And so that is the goal. If we, as we start talking about salvation and redemption and those types of words, the goal of salvation is to be restored to life in the Trinity. It's to be restored to shalom. Do you see this? Do you see how John is tying together the biblical story? It's one storyline, one thread, and it makes sense. It's coherent. John, at the end of his gospel, we get this helpful purpose statement. You know how a lot of times we get purpose statements at the beginning of a piece of literature? John gives us his purpose statement at the very end. So what, that would be uh, inductive, right, as opposed to deductive uh, study. Uh, you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong after the sermon. Or if you want to yell it out now, go ahead. But he says this at the end of the gospel, that he's written his gospel that we, you, the reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
That's the purpose why John, why John, for why John wrote his gospel, so that we might actually believe, that we might receive him, not reject him, that we might receive him and in doing so, receive life in his name. In John chapter 10, Jesus makes this statement that some of you would find familiar. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That is the purpose for which Jesus came. Those words are from Jesus' mouth himself. It's as though he's saying, all right, let's clear everything up. If you want to know the purpose for which I came, why I came into the world, why me, the Logos is here, is that you might have life and not just have a little bit of life, right? Not just have some life over here and life over there. That you might have life abundantly. What Jesus has in mind is, I want you to have the life that you were intended for from the beginning. I want you to swim in the goodness of shalom. That's why Jesus came. Not to make us more religious, but to make us more full with his life. Now, this brings us to a really important point in the Christian faith and something that I think makes it, it's probably what makes it most unique. Uh, and let me summarize this with um, that theologian, Jonathan Pennington, that I already quoted from. Christianity provides not merely a set of values or a vision, that's what we've talked about so far, that we should pursue and which thereby promises flourishing. All right, get this? This is really important. It provides the heart cure and renewal in our souls that enables us to actually pursue and experience flourishing. This is good news indeed. Flourishing can only be achieved because we receive something from outside of ourselves. Salvation is imparted to us by God's Holy Spirit, which restores, to, restores our original relationship with the Creator. This is what is so unique and ultimately powerful about the Christian faith, is that it not only gives us a vision for human flourishing, it does that, and it also gives us a clear vision for why there isn't flourishing currently, why there's something wrong with the world, but it doesn't leave us there. It gives us the solution. And, you know, I don't know where each and every one of you is this morning in relationship to the Christian faith, and my, expect, my expectation is that there are those of you who do not believe yet. That's usually the case when we gather from the very beginning. We desire to be a church in which those who didn't yet believe could investigate the claims of Jesus. So that is just my expectation uh, each and every Sunday morning. But I want to suggest to you, this might be, you might be offended by this. At the very least, you might be surprised by this. But I, I want to suggest to you that this actually resonates with your life experience. What I mean by that is, there's this tension in life. We feel deep in our bones that we want to flourish, that transcendence and wonder are real, that glory is something that is true. And we, we get glimpses into it from time to time in life. Maybe some seasons we get more glimpses than others. However, at the very same time, we can't escape darkness. As John alludes to, darkness is a real thing in this world. We know that things are not the way that they were meant to be, that something is wrong, and we find ourselves in this tension, this mess, however you want to talk about it. But here's my, my point about this resonating with your experience. 
you know you can't save yourself. You know you can't save the world. And to take it a step further, I I think we need to humbly accept that we as a people, as human beings, can't solve what's wrong with the world. And I have proof. We've been trying from the very beginning. And again, we can create glimpses, absolutely, because even though we have rebelled, even though people have rebelled against God, it doesn't erase God's image in us. And God is so good that he still provides what um, some theologians refer to as common grace, that God is good to all in, in some measure. But you know that you can't save yourself. And so I want you to hear the message of the Christian faith this morning. As Jonathan Pennington said again, that it provides the cure, the heart cure and renewal in our souls because we receive something outside of ourselves. And that's what John is talking about later on in these verses. Verse 11, he came to his own, as the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, and here it is, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so John directs us to the activity of God. It is only God who can solve the problem of life. It is only God who can restore shalom. Why is that? Let's be consistent. It's because he is life. He has the goods, so to speak. And it's only God that is able to speak into and to impart the spirit into people who are dead because of sin. And so it's like the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell novel. This can be so true of us that we, um, particularly those of us who have spent a lot of time in the church, we can read our Bibles a lot, we can pray a lot, we can do churchy things, and we can do that all the while not actually practicing real magic, so to speak, not actual magic, but without actually having vitality in our relationship with Jesus. Jesus wants more. Not because he uh, is a harsh master. Why did he come? So that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is jealous for your fullness. Jesus wants so much for you to experience abundant life. He doesn't want you to be a theoretical Christian. He wants you to be a practical Christian who is living life in the life of the triune God, experiencing his fullness and his vitality. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is an amazing statement. And again, remember the the, the original Greek audience. For the Greeks, this would have been just, they would have probably been offended by it. This would have been offensive to them, that the logos that is behind all things could become a human. Why would, why would it want to become a human? Humans are evil. Humans are bad. And yet God takes on human flesh to pursue us and to bring that heart cure to us so that we might be restored to life with him. And we get this repetition of the word grace. 
We have seen his glory, glory as of the only true Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 16, and from his fullness, see it? Fullness, we have all received, notice the word isn't achieved, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Highlights for us again that God is the one who has taken the initiative. He is the one who has brought the good news to us, and we receive it. We don't achieve it. Let me begin to wrap up by asking this question. Do you want to lead a personally fulfilling and spiritually significant life? I, I, I know it sounds, it almost probably sounds cheesy that I would ask it that way, but I'm going to ask it again. Do you want to lead a personally fulfilling and spiritually significant life? If you're like me, your answer is probably yes, but. Yes, I do, because as you've already referred to, deep down in my bones, I long to flourish. I yearn to uh, live the good life, but I'm skeptical. I don't know that I really can. We are all after eternal life. We're going to eventually get to this passage, John 17, 3. You know how Jesus defines eternal life? Knowing the one true God. So he breaks it down. He makes it simple for us. If you want to know what abundant life is, it is intimacy with God. It is personal, deep knowledge of him and who he is and what he has done for us. But we are all searching we're all seeking for eternal life. You might think, well, okay, I get what you're saying, but nobody out there is using the terms eternal life. Have you ever heard of Albert Camus? Maybe, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. He was a philosopher, uh, not a friend of Christianity. Um, but in one of his writings, he said, wrote this, because I longed for eternal life, I went to bed with harlots and drank for nights on end. In the morning, to be sure, my mouth was filled with the bitter taste of the mortal state. Wow. That captures it for us. This tension of transcendence and wonder, but then also the ordinariness, but also the brokenness of life. But Camus is honest. Why did he seek after these things, because he longed for abundant life. He longed for eternal life. You see, the gospel is relevant. Jesus said, remember, that's exactly why he came. He came so that Albert Camus, so that you and I no longer have to look for life in all the wrong places, but that we might receive by his grace what has been done for us so that we might be restored to life in the triune God. It was a brutal winter, wasn't it? Actually, it's probably the case that it was more of a brutal early spring than it was a brutal winter. Uh, early spring seemed worse than the winter. Um, but even more so than any year I remember, and this is I know that this is true for a lot of you, um, I was really longing for spring. Some of those cold days in March that were dreary, you look out. I, I rem um, Just a few weeks ago, I was looking at pictures from our Easter egg hunt in Tilton Park from 2017. Uh, and 
I think it was actually a week or two earlier than it was this year. I could be wrong on that, but it was around the same time at the very least. And I noticed in the pictures that all of the trees were fully bloomed. And I, I was on my third floor working in my office, and I looked out, and the trees weren't bloomed at all. And it was later in the season this year. And so I found myself longing for spring every day, looking at the forecast, when will it finally arrive? Last week, um, last weekend, uh, I, I was, stayed overnight at my uh, brother-in-law's house, and I came home on Saturday, and it had rained on Friday, and I, I, as I pulled up at my house, I um, looked at the park, and I was blown away. It was like all of the trees had bloomed overnight. These beautiful pink blooms. It was spectacular. And now everything is grown. It is flourishing. As we start this journey through this brief series, I want you to feel that kind of longing for Jesus and for his presence. That kind of longing that, at least like me, you felt for spring. When will it come? I know it's coming. Give me faith. Give me a taste of it. Give me glimpses. Let me experience its fullness. Because guess what? Deep down inside, your desire is to flourish. And we've already seen that that is why Jesus came. So there's a match there. <laughs> there's a match. You have this, we have the same goals as Jesus. And so let me leave you with this. Flourishing in relationship with Jesus, true spiritual vitality, fullness of life in the Trinity, not completely in this life. We won't experience it in its complete fullness until the new heavens and the new earth, but it's actually really, truly possible to experience it in measure, increasing measure in this life. And so from here, where we're going to go is we're going to talk about how do we access this life, but next week, we're actually going to look um, at a wedding scene, the very next chapter of John, how Jesus turns water to wine, symbolizing the fullness of his kingdom that he is bringing to us so that we might flourish. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you long for us to flourish. Your word tells us so. Give us the faith to believe it. And we pray that you would impart your spirit to us in greater measure so that we would walk in your ways, so that we would desire you in your presence. I pray that you would give us the faith to believe that we actually can thrive, that we can spiritually flourish, and we, as a result, can seek the flourishing of those around us. Give us a bigger vision of what you are inviting us into. I pray that we would throw away the trap of religion and that we would pursue true vitality in you. We pray in your name. Amen.